Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Yeah, that's got a pretty good ring to it. <laughs> ah, like a ring. Like a ring. ring. I get it. Ah. I get it. So, uh, I have a question for you. Who do you think is the most successful actor today? Uh, let me give you a hint. Tom his, Hanks. His movies have made billions. Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom Hanks. Some people watch just to see him show up. Tom Hanks. And the great thing, he's such a professional, he finishes all his scenes in a single day. Tom Hanks. We're going to talk about Stan Lee. No, we're going to talk about Tom Hanks. <laughs> we're not. Just look look at the look at the title. Yeah, that, that that's just Tom Hanks spelled differently. <laughs> So uh, he is a creator and writer of some of the most profitable characters today. The the uh, most of the Marvel Comics line came from Stan Lee's typewriter, or did they? We're going to cover that. But uh, today he makes his time going around and, and being sort of a brand ambassador to the world, telling his stories about those days because he's a man in his nineties. And there's nothing people like that more than talking about when they were young. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we start at the very beginning when he was a young guest. December of 1922, uh, Stanley Martin Lieber was born to immigrant parents. Uh, he lived in Manhattan's Upper West Side, and then the family moved to Washington Heights when the Depression began. Even as a young guy, he, he loved writing. He took odd jobs writing obituaries and press releases and selling newspaper subscriptions to kids in his school. But you have to love writing to be like, yeah, obituaries. He always dreamed he'd write the great American novel, and you, you gotta get your practice in. I suppose. But that's not all he did for cash as a kid. He was delivering sandwiches. He ushered at a theater. Uh, anywhere there was money to earn... This was the Great Depression, after all. Stan would show up and give it a shot. He graduated high school at 16 and got an acting job with the WPA's Federal Theater Project to meet a girl he saw in a show. Huh. You have a lot in common. Is your inspiration? <laughs> well, uh, I married the girl I met in a show, and he didn't. So I think I'm better than Stanley. Oh. <laughs> Take that, old man. So from his uh, autobiography, Excelsior, The Amazing Life of Stan Lee, after appearing in a few shows, I said, hey, this is for me. I'd gotten the acting bug, and I wasn't the only one. Orson Welles was in it too. Yes, the Orson Welles. I must confess, I never actually palled around with him because he was at another WPA theater in another part of the city. But hey, we literally were both in the WPA together. So I used to tell people, oh yeah, Orson and I appeared in shows for the WPA. If my listeners thought we had been co-stars, who was I to disillusion them? <laughs> and this, I think, cuts to the core of who Stan Lee is. <laughs> How, what's the degree of something? It's all technically true. <laughs> technically. So at the age of 17, he shows up on the doorstep of Timely Comics. Uh, Timely was the comic book division of uh, Martin Goodman's publishing empire. Martin Goodman uh, started by selling pulp magazines, but then diversified into anything that could be put on a newsstand. Stan's uncle was the circulation manager, Robbie Solomon. He was also a cousin of some sort to Martin Goodman's wife. Hmm. 
So uh, two bits of family connection into this company. Uh, he wanted to get experience in publishing to see what publishing like is <laughs> and how to do it. Uh, he expected to spend a few months in comics, then transfer into a more reputable part of the company. You know, the, the real stuff. Burn. <laughs> uh, he was hired that day by Joe Simon, editor of Timely at the time. He, he's best known today as the writer and co-creator of Captain America. Uh, he spent his time there at, at Timely emptying ashtrays, fetching coffee, sweeping floors, because he was Joe Simon's assistant. He did assistant stuff. Yeah. Now, to qualify for magazine postal rates, the books needed a text feature, uh, just because that's the rules. Every issue of Captain America had one, and Stan was asked to write a short story for issue three. Uh, it was called Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge, and that has gone down in history as his first superhero writing, uh, published May 1st, 1941. The, the, he signed it Stan Lee because he intended to save his real name for his serious later work. Oh. <laughs> when he'd go on to write that great American novel. A few months later, he was writing comic scripts for now forgotten characters around the office like Jack Frost and The Destroyer. Jack Frost and The Destroyer partnering up. Either destroying the world or saving it. I'm not sure. But I want that to be a joint thing. I don't I don't even know what they would have looked like then, but I got this idea in my brain. Like I said, they are forgotten characters, to be sure. Joe Simon and his artist, Jack Kirby, still freelanced on the side while working for Timely and learned that Martin Goodman was shorting them on royalties. <gasps> that jerk. Captain America's the top-selling book, and so in order to bring the percentages down, that's the first bit of money that got used for overhead instead of uh, uh, splitting it equally along books. In order to not be screwed, they started developing pitches for Jack Leibowitz over at DC. They rented out a hotel room in secret where they would meet uh, after hours, and then they'd started meeting on their lunches. Mm. So that's when Stan started to realize something was up, and he demanded to be let in on it. And so they did, and he started attending these lunch meetings where they were working on other ideas for other publishers, and then a few days later, Martin Goodman and his brother fired Simon and Kirby. Oh. Now, Jack Kirby was certain that Stan had ratted them out, and that makes sense, but there is no, like, documentation, there's no actual evidence, but, like, it seems to be the case. It seems a little accurate. So with Joe Simon fired, at 18 years old, Stan Lee is now the editor of Timely Comics. Wow. He wrote the titles himself. Uh, he was dictating scripts to writers over the phone. He managed the artists. Art directed the whole line. And all this while uh, wearing a propeller beanie to work every once in a while. But why? Why? Because <laughs> it was 1942. That's what people did. No, I don't think people actually did that. He did. So then World War II breaks out in earnest. Stanley enlists and joins the Army Signal Corps, stringing wires along uh, uh, telephone poles for radio communication. But then somebody hears that he's a writer, and he gets transferred and begins writing uh, handbooks, instruction manuals, uh, venereal disease PSAs. <laughs> when he can find the time, he still sends Captain America scripts back to the office and is getting intermittently published while he's away at war, 
uh, helping train like the army's accountants to to manage payroll efficiently. <laughs> and that's how you win a war right there. So he returned in 1945 to take back his job and found an eager new generation of talent who had been keeping the uh, the house in line while everybody else was off fighting Nazis and a new office in the Empire State Building. It was pretty cool. Fancy. In 1947, he was on his way to meet a girl for a date, but in the elevator saw this this hat model named Joan and convinced her to divorce her husband and marry him instead. <laughs> Why? Well, she, she was pretty unhappy in this one-year marriage to another man, and he's like, you know where you can get a divorce real quick? Nevada. You head down to Reno, I'll be there soon. And so uh, after she finished the, like, six-week waiting period, he shows up on a plane, they go to the courthouse, and she gets divorced. They move to the next room over, and the same judge marries the two of them. Same day. And they'd never met before this happened. Again, that that's how Stan tells you it. You can't marry a man you just met! <laughs> well, tell that to Joan Lieber, who is an amazing woman in her own right. I'd hope so, because I question her sensibility right now. <laughs> but uh, after the post-war boom, there was a pretty quick industry slump. Uh, it was time to constrict. By the end of 1949, almost all the staff had been fired. And of course, it was Stan's job to call them in one by one and fire them. Now, instead of paying for new books, Timely started living off the stockpile of just-in-case inventory that Stan had been asking them to build for years. So he not only had to say, sorry, we're letting you go, but also we're replacing you with the stuff you already made for us and is already paid for. Yeah. Of course, that didn't work so great because the stockpile is out of line with current trends. And eventually some of the fired staff got freelance work for hire gigs for the new uh, war titles and horror books, which were coming into vogue. A Goodman's magazine empire kept the comic side afloat, and they rebounded comfortably until another panic in the 1950s. Which, uh, if you want to hear a little more about, go back to episode three on the Comics Code Authority. Mm -hmm. So following the Senate hearings on comic books and juvenile de delinquency, Stan was on vacation in the Catskills and uh, met a guy. You know, what's the first thing that comes up in conversation? What do you do for a living? And after some hedging of, you know, I'm a writer, what do you write? Back and forth. Uh, he told the man he worked in comic books. The man said, that is absolutely criminal, totally reprehensible. You ought to go to jail for the crime you're committing. The guy he was talking to was a rifle salesman. Uh, which, while also not criminal, probably involved in a bit more crimes than comic books. Yes, just a bit. Uh, Lee continued to fight for increased artist rates because that young talent now had families to support. Mm. Time keeps marching on. Goodman cut costs company-wide by joining independent news instead of uh, a self-distribution sort of situation. But since independent news owned DC Comics, already had a steady revenue stream there, Timely was locked into only publishing eight titles per month. And now the freelancers have to be let go again. They do realize they can't operate without staff, right? Well, with only eight titles, they don't have the funds coming in to support very much staff. Like if, if you've got a staff to manage 20 titles, you suddenly have eight titles. You've got to get rid of a lot of people. Yeah. 
I guess people need work so they come back, but that's not really helping make uh, good relationships. No, no, it's not. So the, these horror books, these science fiction books about uh, mad scientists and, and great monsters from beyond the stars keep the company going throughout the, the late 50s. Uh, they bring uh, Jack Kirby back. They bring in Steve Ditko to draw some of them. And Martin Goodman is off playing golf with Jack Leibowitz, who bragged about the sales of the Justice League of America. Like, all right, we got all these heroes. We put them in a book together. Didn't even have to come up with a new idea. And it's the hottest thing on the newsstands. So Martin Goodman goes back to the office and demands that Timely have their own superhero team. Lee goes home, tells Joan, that's it. I'm done. I got to quit. I've seen this cycle happen too many times. Superheroes come and they go. Something's a big hit. We expand. Then it's not. I have to fire everybody again. I'm sick of it. And so Joan convinces him, no, just give it one more try. Write the story you want to write. What's the worst they can do? Fire you? You're already quitting. Yeah. So he does. He goes through draft after draft of coming up with characters. Uh, just imagine a, a waste paper basket being full to the brim and hands off the character descriptions, and a plot outline to Jack Kirby. Now, Jack Kirby tells the story a bit differently. Marvel was on its ass, literally, and when I came around, they were practically hauling out the furniture, Kirby said. They were beginning to move, and Stanley was sitting there crying. I told them to hold everything, and I pledged that I would give them the kind of books that would up their sales and keep them in business. Either story comes out to the publication of Fantastic Four number one in August of 1961. Uh, not long before Timely had renamed itself Marvel Comics, and these two together, the, the company we know, the brand, the universe we recognize, really began. Uh, Fantastic Four number one showed four superpowered people without costumes. They spent most of their time bickering together, and they weren't all heroic. There's a sense that the thing, this self-hating, uh, monstrous creature, could snap at any time. Uh, it was unlike anything else and revolutionized the superhero market. Now, Lee and Kirby heroes would take over the newsstand slots that used to go to those monster stories and romance books. Uh, the Incredible Hulk, Thor, Ant-Man, Iron Man, the X-Men. Each one a tale of a flawed person transformed, usually by some sort of super science and the Cold War space race. They reintroduced Captain America as a man out of time in Avengers number 4, which Stan was writing when the news broke of the Kennedy assassination. Oh. The, the stories told by someone in the office staff is that everybody else is sitting there shocked and agape like the rest of the country, while Stan is still in his office writing the entire line for this month. Goodness. It's a dedicated man. In June 1962, Amazing Fantasy 15 came out, the first appearance of Spider-Man. Spider-Man is the most significant and maybe the only main Marvel character to be created uh, with Steve Ditko rather than Jack Kirby. They, they were the two artists that Stan trusted most, Kirby most of all. Uh, Don Heck, another one of Marvel's 60s and 70s artists, said, Stan wanted Kirby to be Kirby, Ditko to be Ditko, and everyone else to be Kirby. <laughs> The, the way all these characters started is that uh, Jack Kirby would write the first issue or three and then get passed off to Don Heck, John Romita, whoever else. Mm -hmm. But Kirby was always the foundation. But back to Spider-Man, he was a moody teenage outcast as a hero. 
Speaking of moody people, Steve Ditko was perhaps the moodiest of them all. He drew everything in this very dreary, angsty mood. Uh, Peter Parker never smiled, except in the rare occasions when he got paid. Hey, <laughs> something to smile about. And to, to sort of counteract that, uh, Lee injected this steady stream of wisecracks to, to lighten the mood and provide contrast. Of course, the real characters that he created solely were the Marvel bullpen. In the letters page in his columns, Lee had this very chummy writing style and some complete fabrications uh, of uh, people's personalities and what they were up to that made readers feel like part of the company. In reality, the office was mostly Stanley sitting in a corner with freelancers coming in to drop off their pages, <laughs> pick up their checks, and go back home where they did their actual work. But let me tell you let about everyone that works here and what they're up to and what they're doing. Absolutely. That's the way it was. Like By the end of the 60s, uh, some th there was a real bullpen, but these columns started way before that happened. <laughs> uh, he began taking speaking engagements at colleges, launched the Mary Marvel Marching Society. <laughs> As the official fan club, you send in a dollar, they send you a membership card, a button, and a record album of the staff performing a scene written by Lee. That is a lot for a dollar. Yeah, it's, even, a, it's a mid-60s dollar, but it is. Still, a dollar for all that, even in the 60s, like, that's pretty good. With shipping, I imagine. Like, I, I thought button, membership card, cool, dollar. No, you get a CD like, or an album, <laughs> record, not a CD. They didn't have those then. I know that. That would be something truly worthy of Mr. Fantastic <laughs> to deliver a CD in the 1960s. But yeah, th this album, Lee insisted they rehearse all morning and all the way through lunch and marched the whole staff over to the record studio and they recorded take after take late into the evening. Now, when he tells the story, it's as a moment of inspiration, everyone coming together in the studio and ad-libbing the, the entire bit in one take. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's probably not it, right? That is the minority report. Let, let's just say that. <laughs> now, his editorial asides to cover up staff troubles and explain away things like writer changes in character only exacerbated the tensions. Things like, well, Wallopin' Wally Wood wants to try his hand at writing for once, so who knows what might happen. You might love it, it might be terrible, but it'll sure be different. How do you think Wally Wood's gonna feel about reading that over his art? Not great. Not great. That drove him away from the company entirely, and Steve Ditko further into his isolationism. Steve yeah. Ditko's an interesting, interesting man who uh, unfortunately only exists on the periphery of this episode. In order to manage the, this growth, uh, these sales, and to free him up to go and be the, this public face, he had to hire Roy Thomas to work beneath him, who in turn hired Denny O'Neill. This was also when Lee began, began uh, consulting with the Marvel superheroes ca uh, cartoon, his first leap into broadcasting. Ah. That acting bug that bit him as a teen, he'd always been trying to get back into Hollywood. Now, this is around the time when he started wearing a toupee and grew facial hair. Uh, at first, a full sort of 70s intellectual beard. Today, mm -hmm. it's just the mustache. 
<laughs> was he bald? Is that? Oh, yeah. He was bald then. That's why he had a toupee. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's in the weird uh, position of being a guy approaching 50, but seen as like a, a bulwark of the pop art movement and of 60s, 70s counterculture. So he can't be bald <laughs> and going to these campuses where people are chanting, don't trust anyone over 30. Yeah, I guess that wouldn't help. <laughs> he posed for a photo that was sent to fans who wrote in. You could write in and they'd ship you a glossy 8 by 10 of posed and handsome Stan Lee. And it was advertised as the first in the series of the bullpen blow-ups. There were no other bullpen blow-ups. So in 1970, after uh, tensions had grown, overtures were made from uh, uh, the Distinguished Competition, Jack Kirby left Marvel which left Stan as the only person from those early 60s days. Including the management above him. The company was now a division of Perfect Film and Chemical Corporation. It was no longer Martin Goodman's family business. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was disillusioned, approaching 50, and seemed to be just waiting out his contract. It's, It's playing with my mind that we're talking about the 70s and oh he's 50 like wait yeah. what yeah he's super old uh do you want to read this block quote or should i why don't you do it the caffeine's kind of making me go cross-eyed sometimes <laughs> it was a little hard to read that other paragraph okay at a, an industry gathering he he came up to speak and said quote i've had many talented people ask me how to get into the comic book business if they were talented enough the first answer i would give them is why would you want to get into the comic book business (laughs) because even if you succeed even if you reach what might be considered the pinnacle of success in comics you will be less successful less secure and less effective than if you were just an average practitioner in your art in television radio movies or what have you it is a business in which the creator owns nothing of his creation the publisher owns it isn't it pathetic to be in a business where the most you can say for the creative person in the business is that he's serving an apprenticeship to enter a better field why not go into the other field directly Oof. it was a rough time to be stan <laughs> he took a sabbatical to write a screenplay one of the things he always said he always wanted to do it was called the monster maker it sold for twenty five thousand dollars and never began production oh what was it about uh, it was about a... Uh, a monster maker? Kind of Frankenstein-y? <laughs> it was about a guy who wrote trashy monster movies. Oh. Who then tried to go legitimate, but got pulled back in because his monsters came to life. Oh. If you want to read in some autobiographical parallels, feel free. <laughs> Meanwhile, over uh, at DC... Kirby was working on his Fourth World Saga, which is now highly critically acclaimed, though it didn't sell too great at the time. And part of it was a parody of Lee and Roy Thomas as the huckster Funky Flash Man, who who had a a cliché for every situation, and his simpering assistant House Roy. What? Funky Flash Man and House Roy? Yes. Goodness. Chip Goodman, Martin Goodman's son, licensed out Marvel's characters and promote and uh, music promoter Steve Lemberg's first step in uh, exploiting the, the uh, license he just bought was to make Stan a celebrity. He, he'd be like the, the tip of the phalanx to, to drive these characters into mainstream success. So he had uh, this huge public event at Carnegie Hall. Marvel 
staff writers and artists formed a band to play a number. Uh, Stan's wife and daughter read a poem that he wrote. And there was just a weird C-list celebrity parade of people like, that they could book. A try at Comic-Con thing kind sort of thing. Sort of. Like, oh, you like these people, so come see them? Yeah, but it, but instead of, you know, a weekend of it was just advertisement, it was just this big Stanley extravaganza at Carnegie Hall. It was hastily planned. It was just a mess. Did anyone show up? Uh, well, a lot of people showed up because I think, you know, they, they were giving away tickets for free and a lot of cases just to fill the place. Yeah, it was designed to be a loss leader to, to get this buzz going. And uh, those people spent their time tearing pages out of their, like, party favor comic books and, and making paper airplanes to throw. Oh. They weren't really paying much attention. <laughs> at the end, with his first sort of look at what public celebrity could be and the, the disaster that it could be, Stan just had this deer-in-headlights look. And I think with that, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We, we left you in the uh, early mid-70s, so let's get back yeah. to that. Okay. 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 You yeah. feeling good? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you asking? Hold out your hands. Only my fingers are shaking. <laughs> I might have drinking a little too much coffee this morning. <laughs> I finished the whole coffee pot. So it was pretty clear to uh, the, the new corporate bosses that Stan was pretty unhappy. But he was a big asset. He was the only person they talked to who knew anything about comic books. Oh. And he's someone that the fans clearly... Loved, so they they knew there'd be a bit of a consumer revolt if he left. So to prevent his departure, or even worse, like DC snapping him up, Lee was promoted to president and publisher, promised complete control of the entire comic business. Pretty soon after, he stepped down as president, but remained publisher. Uh, he spent that time as a go-between to the corporate owners. He, he did uh, what he could to expand the line, because... Uh, this was shortly after that limit of eight titles per month uh, expired, and promoting himself, uh, still touring to his small crowds, no big dog and pony foo-for-alls, just talk to the fans, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry Conway was writing Spider-Man now and got, as publisher, Stan's approval to kill Gwen Stacy. <laughs> <laughs> it's much better than it was in the movie, dear. I promise you. Better be. <laughs> At his next college appearance, the crowd was livid, and he disavowed all knowledge, saying that the creative team did it behind his back. <laughs> Stan Lee reminds me a little bit of Abraham Lincoln in this respect, but much worse at it, that every quote you read has to be taken in context of who it was given to. Mm. He's always speaking to one audience at a time. Yeah. Which is why going through all of his statements, you can get kind of a contradictory mess. Yeah. And sometimes it looks like he's deliberately throwing people under the bus. Uh, now, Chip Goodman had been squeezed out by the new management. And uh, in order to get back at them, you know, 
compete with the company that his father gave to him, uh, he founded Atlas Comics. Stan went to war, making sure that freelancers knew what they were risking if they worked for Atlas. You draw for them, there's no guarantee you'll ever draw for us again. And who's got the bigger audience? Who do you trust? Ugh. With a few different games in town, freelancers uh, who had the talent to back it up were free to, like, uh, uh, shop themselves around, look for good deals. Mm -hmm. And one freelancer, when negotiating for a Marvel contract, lied about the page rate DC was giving him. Mm -hmm. uh, Lee heard about this deception and met with Carmine Infantino, pub uh, DC's publisher, to share information on how much each freelancer was getting. They, they would have oh. a list to compare how uh, this person got this much for this many pages, ba 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 that's not illegal. Yeah, if you're wondering, that is explicitly illegal. Carmine Infantino disputes the details, specifically the illegal parts. Protégé and editor Roy Thomas resigned when Lee told him about the meeting. Good for you! That's who we have the uh, that version of events from, Roy Thomas. Meanwhile, Stan Lee took Chip Goodman's place on the magazine side, doing, you know, the glossy books. Uh, he had his own title, Celebrity, which was about him posing for photos with the story subjects. It's like People magazine, but Stan Lee is photographed with all of the people. Other projects, still as Marvel's publisher, included arranging the Kiss comic book. <laughs> As in the band. As in the band. I yeah. had one of their Barbies. Yeah? It came from my cousin. <laughs> I called it the Ugly Doll. Stanley also <laughs> reminds me of Gene Simmons in that neither of them have probably ever turned down a chance to make a buck. Yeah. <laughs> he also starred in a razor commercial, like a shaving razor. Not a razor scooter. He would if they asked. <laughs> He'd do that now and then break a hip. Uh, there is even a memo that that someone found that he wrote to advertisers like, hey, shooting that commercial was great, and it'd be cool. I still do this Stan Soapbox column in all the comic books. I could just talk about how nice your product is in there, too. We could make this work. That, that never really came to pass. Now, in Circus Magazine, 1978, again, this is something to a non-comic book audience, I guess, legitimate sort of celebrity magazine. Uh, he gave them quotes like, I should have gotten out of this business decades ago and wanted to go into movies, a quote, bigger arena, which is exactly what he began to do. He sort of was the self-appointed ambassador to Hollywood beginning in the late 70s. He started taking full-page ads in Variety magazine that were just headshots of Marvel characters with a blurb on why Marvel characters make great movies. <laughs> like the drink milk campaign, but yeah, for it, let's make movies. It was got... Uh, Watch got, your superhero movies. Yeah, it was got Daredevil instead of got milk. Yes. When he did move out to L.A., he bought Moe's house from the Three Stooges and was very excited. <laughs> the guy was born in 1922. He's a big fan of the Three Stooges. Of course he is. From this point on, most of his work in uh, Marvel's comics themselves was managing feuds between staff, which is something we'd be talking more about if this was an episode about the company, not the man. But they, they went through three editors-in-chief in a single calendar year. Oof. It was a madhouse in there. A lot of big egos, a lot of managers who didn't know how to manage, 
and Stan as sort of this figurehead, as somebody nearly everyone in the company got into the business because they were a fan of, had to smooth things out and use that clout. In 1981, he helped uh, open Marvel Productions, a studio that to handle television, animation, and film projects. Uh, meanwhile, as superheroes were on the rise again in the early to mid-80s, uh, Marvel reused old Kirby art that he did for the Fantastic Four cartoon without permission oh. or payment for the Fantastic Four's 20th anniversary issue. They also refused to return his original 60s art from the warehouse while other creators were getting theirs. Oh. Kirby went hard in the press for his creator's rights. Yeah. Like, Steve Ditko is getting his original Spider-Man pages, and he's cutting them up for use as drafting boards. I can't get my pages? <laughs> Steve Ditko's a character, <laughs> once again, I must say. So uh, in these interviews to, to industry papers, to mainstream papers, he uh, claimed sole credit for writing books from the beginning and creating all the 60s heroes, including Spider-Man, who he, again, uh, never had a credit in a book. But he's like, yeah, Stan, it was my idea that Stan started writing and uh, he, he gave the notes to Ditko to draw it. But it's my idea. Mm. Stan went to bat for the old stories that he'd been telling for decades and his place in them, but was shaken by this attack from an old friend. Uh, quote, I don't know much of what Jack is talking about these days. I just feel I'm listening to the mouthings of a very bitter man who I feel quite sorry for. I don't know what the problem is, really. In 1987, with Marvel under new corporate ownership once again, and a new editor-in-chief, again... Over 2,000 pages were returned to Kirby. Uh, of the 80,000 they had, but it's something. On his 70th birthday, Jack Kirby did a radio interview, and Stan called in. After not speaking for over five years, they spoke cordially and expressed their respect for each other. Then, Stan insisted he wrote every word of dialogue. What the fuck? Here's the rest of that conversation. I'm Jack Kirby. And I'm Stanley. Wow, you're very wrinkly all of a sudden. I'm old. <laughs> I can tell you that I wrote a few lines myself above every panel. They weren't printed in the book. Jack isn't wrong by his own lights, because answer me truthfully. I wasn't allowed to write. Did you ever read one of the stories after it was finished? I don't think you did. I don't think you ever read one of my stories. I think you were always busy drawing the next one. You never read the book when it was finished. My own dialogue, Stanley, and I think that's the way people are. Whatever was written, it was the action I was interested in. I know, and look, Jack, nobody has more respect for you than I do, and you know that. But I don't think you ever felt that the dialogue was very important, and I think you felt... Anybody can put their dialogue together. It's what I'm drawing that matters. And maybe you're right. I don't agree with it, but maybe you're right. I'm only trying to say, I think that the human being is very important. If one man is writing and drawing and doing a strip, it should come from an individual. I believe you should have the opportunity to do the entire thing yourself. And then they moved on to closing statements. Lee went first. Jack has made a tremendous mark on American culture, if not on world culture, and I think he should be incredibly proud and pleased with himself, and I want to wish them all the best, him and his wife, Roz, and his family, and I hope that 10 years from now, I'll be in some town somewhere listening to a tribute to his 80th birthday, and I hope I'll have an opportunity to call at that time and wish him well then, too. Jack, I love you. Well, the same here, Stan, but, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Stan. 
Warren, you there? Uh, you can understand now what it was really like back then. Goodness. Goodness. But still, Stan keeps plugging along, being the only real celebrity, the only recognizable person in the comic book industry has its benefits. Like officiating the wedding of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson live at Shea Stadium in front of 55,000 people. What? Yes. They had a, a Peter Parker and they had a Mary Jane and it was the same day that the uh, book depicting the wedding came out on the shelves and also the newspaper strip People do weird shit. <laughs> That's really creepy. He tried to leverage things like this, events that show this uh, uh, demand and excitement and his personality. Like, all these quotes we're reading, I don't know if we could possibly get across the the presence this guy has. He's, he's a showman. Uh, he's got this incredible energy, and he tried to put all these things into his film pitches that always fell on deaf ears. He kept plugging for so long, and nothing, nothing comes of it. So in 1991, Marvel went public. You know, so they, they became a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. and Stan went on a publicity tour as the share price climbed. Newspapers, Larry King's radio show, the whole shebang. And tired of seeing film products go unproduced, he went into business himself and started producing Comic Book Greats, a series of VHS tapes where Stan interviewed comics professionals. The very first guests were Marvel's highest-selling artists at the time, Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld. So uh, part of this interview was the, the live creation of a brand-new character that Liefeld inked on screen while they talked. And you can find videos of them doing this and see that their chat is full of backhanded statements with Stan completely unimpressed by what was then in vogue. (laughs) It's great. Check the show notes. It's one of my favorite things in there. Uh, Liefeld and McFarlane were already in the process of quitting Marvel to found Image Comics. Art of Spawn was hanging on the wall the entire time. (laughs) I mean, Image today is a great publisher, but when they founded it, it was garbage. (laughs) It was bad. Takes a while for things to, you know, grow. Creator-owned comics are great. They made bad ones, folks. They made real bad ones. Another corporate shakeup, again, brought uh, Avi Arid into the company who joined Stan as ambassador to Hollywood. By 1993, Arid had already sold the X-Men film rights to Fox. He, he got in there and did it up quick. Yeah. Stan felt like he was being pushed more to the side as more deals were struck although they all continued to languish in development. In 1994, Jack Kirby died. Stan asked his wife permission to attend his funeral, sat alone, and then left quietly. Aww. Yeah, uh, Roz was calling him from the receiving line to, to say hello, but he continued out the side door and went home. Aww. Meanwhile, uh, Stan was making a return to the comics business with his own Marvel imprint, Excelsior Comics. This would be... Uh, an imprint is sort of like a section of a company. It would still be Marvel Comics, but it would be separate in its own little bubble. It, Sub. Thing. Yeah, its own little mission statement, its own small line of titles that would all be Stan Lee's books. Yeah. After a year in development, it was canceled before launching when sales across the industry dropped off a cliff and the company declared bankruptcy. Oh. 
all those uh, Liefeld and McFarlane books that people were going crazy for caused a huge speculation bubble, and the bubble popped. Oh, boy. Uh, the two-year bankruptcy ended when Isaac Perlmutter bought the company. Ike ended Lee's lifetime contract and offered him instead a two-year deal at half the pay. Oof. So Lee called in a lawyer, played some hardball, and threatened to walk, uh, and began disputing ownership of the characters he created, which uh, is the sort of thing you threaten to do to get a much better non-exclusive deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one provision in that deal was a 10% cut of Marvel's profits from TV and films based on their characters. Oh! This was the mid-90s before there were such things, but that's going to come back, believe you me. Oh, boy. In 1998, he founded Stan Lee Media, uh, thanks to the non-exclusivity clause, an internet media company that made web animations trading on his notoriety. One of their series was about Stan Lee's evil clone. Like, <laughs> really, everything he does in business is his own personal brand. And it has been for a long, long time, but that becomes a thing you can do overtly in like the mid-90s to today. Uh, so Stanley Media had plans for all kinds of media and merchandise. It was a booming, profitable dot-com startup, but Stan was the product, not the boss. Like, he, he'd go to meetings and people would be like, hey, uh, I got this idea, I got this idea to help him workshop it, because he's, he's a creative guy after all. He's like, okay, I love these ideas, and I'm going to take them to uh, the board, and they're not going to listen to me, so don't get your hopes up at all. Aww. Now, Stanley Media collapsed due to his business partner's stock manipulation scam. It was, oh. there were junk bonds involved, and it was all just a, a way for the, the banker involved to make a quick buck and run. Lee said, now the only people I know I can trust are my wife and daughter. Oh. Now, in retribution... Or, uh, or reaction to either the competition or just squeezing extra money out of him, mm -hmm. Perlmutter took Stanley Presents off all the covers and had Marvel stop sending him complimentary copies of the issues. Oh, man. Ike Perlmutter is also an incredibly interesting character who should not be real. <laughs> When the collapse of Stanley Media happened, Marvel's management cheered in the hallways. Uh, the creative side just tried to keep their head down and not make waves. Oh, poor creative Cause, side. Because this is yet again another generation of Stan Lee's fans filling the company. Yeah, and they're just stuck in a weird place of wanting a job. Mm -hmm. But At the House of Ideas. Yeah. His connections and drive from Stanley Media became... POW Entertainment, his current uh, uh, production studio. Uh, its first production was Stripperella, a superhero vehicle for Pam Anderson. But uh, <laughs> it's continuing to this day with uh, projects like Who Wants to Be a Superhero from the early 2000s, Stan Lee's Superhumans, a documentary show from the late 2000s, uh, Chakra the Invincible, a comic book slash cartoon series about an Indian boy who gets superpowers from his chakras. Goodness. Yeah, I mean, so in 2000, after decades of trying, the X-Men film comes out. The first major film based on one of his creations. Blade came out earlier, but Stanley didn't make Blade. No. No. Uh, followed soon after by Spider-Man, which is yet again 
when he goes out on media tours as Marvel's ambassador to the world. He is definitely their biggest living asset. He might be the greatest character they own. <laughs> he really might. In late 2002, after Spider-Man set box office records, he sued Marvel for that 10%. In 2005, he was awarded $10 million in exchange for dropping rights to future profits. <laughs> All right, you get $10 million now, and we're done. Like, we just can't. Yeah. We just, like, here, take this money. That was supposed to be like a Hollywood accounting thing, and you'd get nothing. You accidentally got $10 million. That's the end. You're cut off. <laughs> How much money would he have made by now? Just from Avengers alone? Oh, boy. I'm so curious. Do the math. <laughs> I want to know. So uh, now here we are today, uh, 2017. Stan continues doing what he's been doing for nearly 50 years, being that face of comics as a whole and Marvel's biggest cheerleader. Uh, as of now, his IMDb page shows 101 acting credits <laughs> and 187 appearances as himself, most of them just exploding following the year 2000. Yeah, yeah, because that's when everything started happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it technically started as when he showed up in Mallrats as himself, but really, the year 2000 with, with X-Men coming out. Yeah. Uh, other people made the films of his characters happen despite his best efforts in the 70s and 80s, but he's the one that gets to be in them. Uh, he's a charmer, a huckster, a showman, a company man... And I honestly don't know what's the happier part of his career. The, the 60s, when the bullpen was lively and, and he was just revolutionizing the industry, or today when he gets to relive his memories and his version of all those events to crowds of cheering, paying fans. It blows my mind that X-Men came out almost two decades ago. Yeah. Also, I think, isn't Stanley coming back to C2E2 this year? He is. Uh, yeah. It was weird because when they announced it, they're like, for the final time, Stanley uh, comes to C2E2. Uh, no! Like, Do you know something we don't? Is he supposed to die? Is it just like he's retiring from touring? I'm concerned now. So, dear, what have you learned? I'm interested, actually, in all these other people. Yeah? That you, you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. But now I'd like really like to dive more into like other people's opinions of Stanley. <laughs> I had two major sources for this. So if you'd like to go do some reading for yourself, check out Excelsior, The Amazing Life of Stan Lee, his autobiography, and also Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe, which is obviously about the company, less the man, but it is is full of more stuff about Ike Perlmutter or Steve Ditko or... Steve Englehart, who we didn't even mention because he doesn't really cross Lee's path, but he's a fascinating guy. I learned that Stanley wanted to quit a lot. Yeah. It's a long, long career with a lot of ups and downs, and some of those downs were, whew. It makes me curious of, like, if he would have, like, quit early and gone on to write his novel, or if he mm -hmm. would have quit and moved on to more If the Monster stuff. Maker got produced. If that, yeah. Like, there's so many things that he did or tried to do, or said he wanted to do, it makes me wonder what the alternative re reality would be for any yeah. of those things. Like, if that would have happened. He would have been incredible in advertising. Yeah. And the thing is, a lot of the, the artists he was working with, at least in the 50s and 60s, that's where they got the rest of their freelance money. So, like, he had the connections. Yeah. Because he's been marketing himself for uh, 
60 years now. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny, too, though, how, like, he really took off in the past 20 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, like, I mean, he was always a thing, but, like, he became a thing then. Yeah. That's when he became big. Yeah, his, his like personality as product thing that's that's ubiquitous today that's he what, was so ahead of the curve everyone knows who stan lee is now and that's thank not thank you for listening to this episode everyone in the world well i mean, <laughs> I mean like within the past 20 years mm-hmm. because there was like that shift with the movies and everything else happening and go- going back to the introduction i really think depending on how you count it he is the most successful actor today <laughs> well he got 10 million for one thing. <laughs> and then they were like, please don't. You're just done. You're done because you're going to make so much money and we can't give you this money. So just take it. But to yeah. have that many credits in both categories, type mm-hmm. thing, like mm-hmm. that's insane. He's constantly doing interviews and showing up for a Big Bang Theory cameo all the time. Yeah. Forgot about that. My research didn't. <laughs> Does Stanley have a favorite cameo? He's made. Uh, he said once his favorite cameo was in uh, Avengers Age of Ultron when he's one of the World War II veterans that Captain America invites to the, like, house party. And he gets real drunk and Thor has to pick him up and carry him off the couch. <laughs> he likes that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite Stanley cameo? My favorite Stanley cameo... I really like the first one where he's selling hot dogs on the beach in X-Men and the camera just pans over <laughs> him and it's super blink if you miss it. Yeah. But the running joke in the Iron Man movies where Tony misidentifies him as a different elderly celebrity in every movie. Yeah. And you don't know if he is actually Hugh Hefner or if he's like playing himself. Yeah. That's a good joke. That's pretty good. So with that, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with some letters. Okay. Excelsior. Hey folks, after we finished recording, uh, Elena dedicated all proceeds from her Etsy shop over the next two weeks to be donated to the ACLU. There is a link in the show notes that we made this decision after we recorded the episode. So that's why we don't mention it in the regular part. So now I'm going to uh, encourage you to check out etsy.com slash shop slash madfuzz. Again, link in the show notes. And know that after shipping and fees, every dollar you pay will go straight toward things like uh, resisting and overturning the uh, Muslim ban executive order and other uh, protections of uh, people's civil liberties. And now here's those letters. Welcome back, everybody. We've got so many letters. Yes, we do. So many. <laughs> Claritic writes in uh, to answer the prompt for a uh, favorite future thing. She would love an or- organically grown body, or maybe an Android body, or a holographic simulation, or some sort of custom-made body swap and be what you want to be. That'd be cool. That would be cool. So thanks, Claritic. 
David wrote in their favorite superhero is... Which was this week's prompt. This week's prompt. It's kind of hard to choose, but they would go with Marvel's The Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. (laughs) Uh, And part of that is because Peter Parker always tries to do the right thing and doesn't always work, but he doesn't give up. So thank you, David. Thanks, David. Tam writes back and uh, takes the superhero out of uh, the medium of comic books and into video games. Her favorite is Geostellar from the Mega Man Star Force series set in the future. And also uh, Boki from her friend's game Copy Kitty, which is still in Steam Early Access. You can check it out right now. Hey! Helping you plug. So thanks, Tam. Leanne's favorite superhero is Jaime Reyes, the third Blue Beetle, which is a great choice. And more recently, I say recent, but she was invented a long time ago, Squirrel Girl. Her current ongoing series is pretty darn great. I agree. I mean, how can you say no to... Squirrels? A squirrel. A squirrel that wears a pink bow. Squirrels are cute. They're so fuzzy. Thanks, Leanne. So Alex writes in with answers to a few prompts. Uh, including our current one of Superhero, and it is a tie between Dick Grayson as Robin in the Teen Titans cartoons and Starfire, also from Teen Titans. To our prompt about futuristic idea, uh, Alex likes the idea of the end of physical labor uh, when technology reaches a point where humans aren't required for building and manufacturing and thinks that that could lead to humanity really blossoming. Or conversely, widespread poverty and disease. we got to be sure to, to equitably uh, distribute the fruits of that robot labor. There would be that. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Blummin writes in, uh, for the first time, thanks, Blummin. Uh, their favorite superhero is The Flash. Not, not just a cool superpower, but like, hey, criminal science. That's cool. And along with that, a picture of an adorable kitty cat. Oh, it's so cute. She's super old, but Aww. cute. Thanks, Blumen. Flavor 5 wrote in that their favorite superhero would be Sherlock Holmes. I like it. That's a good yeah. call. He's got a cape and everything. <laughs> Flavor 5 goes on to say that uh, Sherlock Holmes is a superhero in a way that it feels uh, attainable at times. Um, it's... Not too hard to imagine being able to work on being so smart and observant that you can tell what someone does for a living or where they've been today just from a glance. Uh, so thank you, Flavor 5. Thanks. Uh, Ludovico writes in for, I think, the first time. Yep. Uh, to say their favorite superhero is Ms. Marvel. I'm pretty sure they, they mean the current Ms. Marvel run featuring Kamala Khan, which is great. They did ask a question, which mm-hmm. is a question... We get a lot. It was most of the history topics seem to be tied to the U.S. in one way or another. Is it by design or just a coincidence of speaking about what you know you are more familiar with? Do we have plans for international topics? It's things we like, things we know about, things we're interested in. It's all about knowing where to start. Yeah. Which is why it builds on previous... We we tend to pick things based on previous knowledge we already have. So things we're familiar with, local things. Yes. But... We have touched on things outside the U.S. And will again, yes, soon. Yes, we, we have plenty of ideas coming. Popular question, though. A lot of people have asked that. Thanks, Ludovico. Yeah. David writes in, and his favorite superhero is the 90s teen hero Impulse. Basically, a kid who is the Flash, but he's also from the future. 
Uh, Impulse has a weird background and a giant head, and I like him. He's cool. <laughs> David points out things like how he would actually use his superpowers like a teenager would. Like, uh, instead of researching a school report on France by, you know, reading a book, he just ran to France. And also has a picture of a kitty named Stinky. And a question. Uh, David was a history teacher for a few years, and one thing he found hard was engaging students' interest. So I'd like to know, what was it that first got you interested in history and why? I've always been interested in history. Yeah. Like... I read a lot as a kid. Like, <laughs> I went through, like, 12 books a week. I think the library might have upped their, like, limit on how many books you could take out because of me. Historical fiction mm -hmm. books were, like... You were a big American Girl girl. American Girl had a big thing when I was very young. American Girl or Dear America books, which are all historical fiction. And stuff like that really got me interested. I guess also the, like, scene... Like, I always loved seeing places that were historical. Yeah. Like, yeah. finding, like, the actual... Historical fiction connects you to, like, the people. It's not just here's historical facts. It, it puts you in the place. It puts you in the person's life. So you can, like, understand it from their point of view better. Mm -hmm. But then seeing the places makes it come alive. Right. So being able to see historical places. You know our most listened to episodes... Mackinac in Philadelphia. Be because we've actually been there, probably, and we were, uh, like, so ridiculous about them. I guess the listeners connect to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not like I came into this late. I don't really mm -hmm. have a, oh, this is what turned my life around to history. It's always kind of been there. But what about you? <laughs> it's the only map we have for where we're going. Everything, in a sense, you know, if you're able to look at things allegorically or in different contexts. Everything that's going to happen has already happened. And it's a clear guide for how to shape things moving forward. So so his, history is a tool. History is a map of time. And I love maps. You do love maps. Now that is, that is a cool answer. Yeah. But how did you get interested first? Is it just because there were old maps? And you were like, these are cool. I want to look at more old maps. I mean, it didn't Because hurt. I don't think you had this, like, intellectual thought process Look, I was a it. smart kid. <laughs> I really liked learning anecdotes because I could say them and show off at parties. <laughs> that sounds more accurate. All right. So my, my deep, dark secret revealed. Thank you, David. <laughs> James wrote in, uh, their favorite group of superheroes is Teen Titans. You should talk to Flavify. Yeah. Get in touch. I think you guys would get along. So thanks, James. Thanks, James. Porin writes in to talk about the superhero of Japan. Ooh. Kamen Rider, uh, also known as the Masked Rider, depending on how translated the thing you're looking at is, uh, is a, the most popular superhero series of all time in Japan. Uh, he was a motorcycle racer and uh, was responsible for the boom of superhero TV series. Uh, the entire trope where a hero transforms with a ritualistic dance and shouting, henshin heroes, as you might call them as a, as a category. And pretty much anything that is associated with 80s and 90s superheroes TV, in Japan at least, can be traced straight back to Kamen Rider. Uh, actually, there was a, a Spider-Man TV series in Japan for a while, and they made their Spider-Man a motorcycle racer. Nice. 
directly because of Common Rider. And also they gave Spider-Man a giant robot that he could Damn punch right. monsters in. That's what he needs. And he was the first to have that. So Spider-Man is the reason that like the Power Rangers have a giant robot. It's all connected, man. So thanks, Purin. Jack writes in to answer two prompts. First, positive note from 16. They moved across the country to live with a girlfriend and fellow fan of the show, Rachel. Aw, you too. After all, history's better with your honey. Aww. 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 That's sweet. Now, his favorite superhero is Shitaro Ishinomori's Cyborg 009. Not one, but a team of superheroes. Nine cyborgs who engage with an evil organization known as Black Skull. Th- their conflict is with an even larger and more evil organization than that, Global Capitalism. Heck yes! <laughs> I haven't watched the show and I already love it. While, while we're uh, hooking fans up, y'all should talk to Purin because Shitaro Ishinomori was also the creative force behind Kamen Rider and the first Super Sentai show. Oh! There you go. Uh, he also holds the Guinness record for most published comics by a single author, coming in at over 128,000 pages Dang. of sequential art. Dang. Those are some cool facts. Thank you, Jack. Uh, Riv wrote in, uh, their cousin introduced them to the show, maybe by our suggestion of telling your cousin. Did we say that one? You've said it a few times. Okay. Uh, so shout out to Rich for, uh suggesting the show they answer a couple of prompts a uh, positive note for 2016 got their bachelor's degree and a job very very cool congratulations on those things prompt um from a ways back about favorite musical uh their favorite musical is the color purple and also since a lot of people mentioned hamilton hamilton wants to remind people to check out in the heights which was the musical created before that by the same person. I think someone actually wrote in that they really liked In the Heights. Or maybe we talked about In the Heights? We talked about In the Heights. I don't know. In the Heights is really cool. The next thing you suggested, which is Tick, Tick, Boom, we totally talked about Tick, Tick, Boom. Rent or Tick, Tick, Boom? Which do you prefer? Ask the birds. Fear or love, baby. I love Tick, Tick, Boom. I'm glad you know Tick, Tick, Boom, too. Don't say the answer. Actions speak louder than words. I agree with Riv. If you haven't checked those things out, please do. Uh, favorite superhero leaning towards Captain America or Wonder Woman, mostly because of their punching Nazis habits. All right. And thank you for the picture of the dog. It's cute. I like the t-shirt. Yeah, it's sleepy. <laughs> Thanks, Riv. Darnell is back with a, a prompt response and a correction. Darnell's favorite superhero is Nightwing, uh, the uh, independent superhero identity of Dick Grayson, the first Robin. And spent some time as Batman himself and a pretty good run, dang it. Now as for the correction. Uh, all right. So when I was talking about the duality of McCarthy's in the Battle of Michigan Avenue episode, it is important to note that by that point, Joseph McCarthy had already died. <laughs> D- d- despite uh, anti-communist fear-mongering uh, uh, continuing after. And as a senator, uh, he was never directly involved in the House Un-American Activities Committee because it was a House committee and he's a senator, which is a very common mistake that I fell into along with many, many other people. But yeah, he, he died in 57. So <laughs> thanks, Darnell. So uh, Joel writes in and... 
uh, shared a funny story of while listening to the Iroquois Theater Fire episode, the fire alarm went off and thought for a second that we use sound effects. Not for that. No. Not for that. I, I hope <laughs> there wasn't actually a fire and someone was just burning some cookies. But in answer to the prompt for superhero, they have to go with Hawkeye. Hawkeye, both from uh, Matt Fraction's recent run in the comics and Jeremy Renner's portrayal in the films. So thank you, Joel. Mm-hmm. Uh, one note that I didn't really bring up was uh, how early Marvel had a thing for uh, portraying disability in their uh, comics. Hawkeye uh, was hard of hearing and, and used a hearing aid. Thor had a alter ego as D- uh, Donald Blake, who walked with a limp, and uh, his cane became Thor's hammer. Oh. And, of course, Stephen Strange's hand tremors, so he can no longer be a, a all-star surgeon, and became a sorcerer instead. Sorcerer. Sorcerer Supreme, I'll have oh, you Oh, know. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Joel. Bob uh, writes in for the first time in a while, going through a, a backlog that's built up a bit. His favorite superhero is the Voltron Force. And while he hasn't seen the new version on Netflix, people I know who have watched it enjoy it quite a bit. So uh, have a secondhand recommendation for that. And as for favorite local oddity, as a resident of Northeast Pennsylvania, ha- has heard people talk about The Office being in Scranton a lot and is glad to hear us talk about things like Knobles, which you don't hear about so much. Uh, but Scranton was also home to the first electric operated trolley system, earning it the nickname of the Electric City. Pretty, pretty darn cool. Thanks, Bob. Shmeev writes in uh, that their favorite superhero is Squirrel Girl. They first heard of Squirrel Girl because they were looking something up about Wolverine on Wikipedia and it mentions a relationship with her. So, of course, had to check that out. Not that kind of relationship. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but not, no. No, no. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> and they also sent in a picture of their dog, their dog that. It was from 15 to 20 years ago, but it is a cutie. Bocephus is a real good name for a dog. Yeah, it looks very fluffy. Yeah. Thanks, Schmeev. And our last letter we received before recording, you've, oh, you've been so generous, so generous with all these letters, comes from Alex and Faye. Alex is a sci-fi fan, so he's got a few favorite features, but wanted to share those wonderful 60s... Uh, retro features that you might see in things like Jerry Anderson Super Marionation series uh, and all sorts of 50s, 60s futurism. Hovercrafts and atomic planes and donut-shaped space stations. Incredible. I uh, even sent us a couple of pictures from a futurist artist showing a design for a disc-shaped vehicle and a city with uh, docking ports for public transport uh, versions of the same. Unfortunately, this sort of thing falls apart in nuclear war if you follow it through the Fallout series of video games, but that's okay. We just won't do that. Thanks so much, Alex. So, do you have a favorite superhero? Yes, I do, darling. Yeah. It's you. (laughs) I'm not a superhero. I think you are. Aww. You're incredibly talented and generous and helpful. Yeah. 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 You want to know who my favorite superhero is? Who? Darkwing Duck. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Why no one say that one? At least we'll always have the terror that quacks in the night. Yeah. I'd like to thank everybody for writing in. 
Uh, and if you would like to write in to our email and get it read on the show, maybe you can send those emails to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. That's right. And you can uh, give us questions or some people send suggestions mm-hmm. or just chat or you can answer our uh, uh, prompt that we like to give out. What's the prompt for next episode? Okay. Well, our next episode is coming out on Valentine's Day. Aww. So we're going to get really into the theme. Mm-hmm. Tell tell us what your favorite historical couple is. Yeah. yeah. That's very sweet and romantic. Aww. Aww. But you can also get in touch with us on Facebook. Yep. On Twitter. Yep. On Instagram. Yep. And those are all at History Honeys. Mm-hmm. And while you're out there online, why not drop us a rating and review? In fact, there are so many reasons to do so. Yeah. It, it helps us get found. It helps uh, spread the word through the magic of algorithms. Ooh. And we appreciate every last one so, so much. Yeah. You can also tell a friend. And you don't just have to tell a friend. You can tell other people in your life. I just want to say barista again because you loved that so much last week. Well, but you can tell your barista and you can tell other people in your life, like your house painter, your lift driver, your, your florist, your subway driver. These are all people you can tell. <laughs> Please tell them and pass it on. Be like our one listener who found out from a cousin. Be like them. Thank you so much for listening, True Believers. Oh, I am planning to take all those lovely furry animal pictures yeah, we have been sent. We, got, and we mentioned a few in the email segment, but we got a lot more from Twitter. We th- got a few from Facebook. They're all so good. They have to be seen by the masses. So I'm going to take them, which hopefully everyone is okay with. With your permission. Yes. If you, if you, if you sent pictures and you're like, I'd rather you not have that up there let me know and i'll take it down but we're gonna create a little photo album on facebook where you can go enjoy all the furry creatures that have been sent to us i know there was someone who said they had a a fish but they weren't much to look at i doubt that i bet it's a beautiful beta fish yeah i bet that's an alpha fish nope still shaking still shaking from the caffeine well uh enough said i'm grant and i'm elena and history's better with with your honey. honey